In this episode, I talk to Ian Anderson, a well-known commentator on politics and financial services. Now, you might have heard his predictions about the Scottish independence referendum and the UK general election. Now you can listen to his thoughts on the future of the UK financial services industry under the new Conservative government. Hear his opinion on how we should best engage with policymakers as they embark upon yet another review of financial advice. That's all right here in episode 58 of the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast. Welcome, you're listening to the podcast for financial services professionals looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of marketing, protection and finance. episode you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash mpaf so let's get on with the show and here's your host roger edwards hello and welcome to the empath podcast it's great to have you on board and thanks very much for putting me and my guests into your earphones once again Thank you also for your feedback and for your encouraging emails. Feedback helps me shape the show to deliver content you want to hear and guests you want to listen to. So do please keep it coming. If you enjoy the show, please share it with one, yes, it only needs to be one, friend or colleague. That'll help me grow the show and bring more guests who can share their ideas and inspiration with you. Someone recently said to me that podcasting is the new networking. Now, whilst the Empath podcast is aimed primarily at UK marketers and UK financial services professionals, we have been attracting attention from over the pond in the United States of America. I was delighted to recently be contacted by Ken Smith from Assurity Life Assurance in Nebraska. Now, I originally met Ken while speaking at a critical illness conference in Atlanta 10 years ago. Yesterday, we had a catch-up, a long Skype call to talk about what's been happening with critical illness cover on both sides of the Atlantic over the last 10 years. I think there's some really interesting stuff there, and we can learn a lot from Ken's experiences, so do look out for Ken on a future episode of the Empath Podcast. So let's get into today's interview, and I'm really excited about my chat with Ian Anderson. A co-founder, director and chief corporate counsel of Cicero Group, Ian started his career as a journalist developing a strong interest in politics and financial services. He's a much sought after speaker, well known for his election predictions and views on how best to engage with government on financial services policy issues. He regularly contributes to national and international print and broadcast media, including Sky News and the BBC. He's also contributing political editor of Square Mile and writes regular blogs for the Huffington Post and Conservative Home. He loves spending time in Nice in France and is an opera nut. So here is Ian Anderson, right here on the Marketing, Protection and Finance podcast. So, Ian, welcome to the Empath Podcast. Thanks, Roger. Great to be with you. And it's great to have you on board. Ian, tell me, where are we Skyping you from today? So, today I'm in London, but oh, you can find me quite peripatetically, often in, often in Brussels, 
um, and the States and Asia as well, given what I get up to. But I'm mainly based in London. And you've just come back from Alaska, but that wasn't business. That was pleasure, wasn't it? That was entirely pleasure. And if uh, you've not been to Alaska, gone on an Alaskan cruise, I can thoroughly uh, recommend it as far away from the world of heady finance as I can imagine. It's great. I think whale watching and watching the occasional moose is uh, (laughs) slightly more interesting sometimes, yes. So you and I have known each other for, I was trying to think about it before, Ian, it's it's quite a long time because the first time we spoke was probably when you were a journalist writing on Investment Week, probably quite soon after Investment Week launched. That's probably about 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that probably is about 20 years ago. And uh, some of the things that we'll no doubt we'll talk about are exactly the same as they were 20 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, no, but that, that, that's right. I mean, it was about it was about 20 years ago. And uh, I, you know, I was part of the launch team of um, Investment Week, right. um, which was, as it then was, City Financial became Incisive Media's first ever publication. Yeah, investment when the the editor was Lawrence Gosling, I think. That's exactly right. Lawrence was the editor and we created a small team, actually not far away from where I'm sitting uh, right now here in in, in central London. We had no desks, we had one phone and we had a lot of love and (laughs) a a lot of support from the sector to to get a publication up and running really mainly initially for the the sort of fund management sector, but it kind of broadened across the wider financial services piece. and here's another little trip down memory lane. So I was a lowly product manager in those days, working for Scottish Provident, yeah. and Pole Hill Communications decided to fly you up from London to Edinburgh for the festival. So again, yeah. this is probably about 20 years ago. And yeah. you and I went out for dinner, uh, predominantly to talk about protection insurance, but I think ultimately we ended up talking about everything but protection insurance. <laughs> we went to see Lee Evans, yeah. and then yeah. we ended up at the uh, the Gilded Balloon, which was, uh, which is a sort of very late night spot. And I think I completely gave up the ghost about 3am, but you were keen to carry on. So I think I might have actually deserted you at the Gilded Balloon at 3am when you were up here in Edinburgh. So if I've ever not apologised for that, Ian, I apologise now. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I, don't know who's, I don't know who's drinking legs are more effective these days. I don't know if I'm doing very many 3am's anymore, probably no. like uh, many others. So let's move on and, and talk a little bit about you before we get into some of the topics that we want to discuss today. So in tell everybody about where you came from where you're going and, and basically what makes you tick so um, I mean kind of if you cut me in half sounds a bit unpleasant but if you if you cut me in half Roger you know it would probably say a mix of news and politics and as my kind of career is developed finance so I, I started off um, as, a, as a general kind of news uh, reporter and Work for a whole variety of publications, and but but really, um, kind of specialising in finance was something I was always interested in. And frankly, not many journalists at that time wanted to, to specialise in city or, or financial affairs. So I thought there was quite a good opportunity there. Uh-huh. And um, well, uh, you know, lots of paths um, sort of lead lots of people still, and we can in a new debate this, but inevitably to, to, to London. I was born in Aberdeen. Um, I was educated in Aberdeen and, and in St Andrews, so we educated pretty much in Scotland. Came to London, came and joined money marketing that I think most of your listeners will have, will have come across. 
and was covering a whole variety of kind of issues uh, for them. Then um, kind of started to, to, to freelance a bit too. So worked for the, the Telegraph, worked for the Guardian, worked for the Express on sort of city and uh, personal finance issues. And then as we were discussing earlier, yeah, this opportunity came up with Investment Week. But while all that was going on, I was kind of keeping lots of political interests going and among other things, tried to get Ken Clark elected as leader of the, the Tory party on, on, on a couple of occasions. Um, okay. that clearly wasn't the most successful political campaign uh, <laughs> um, that I've been involved in, but but hey, you know, it, working with somebody like Ken was an amazing experience. I, I'm, I'm the chap that was responsible for putting Ken Clark in a Grand Prix car, oh, right. m- much against Ken's uh, better judgment. And uh, again, it probably doesn't go down as my biggest PR hit because trying to get Ken Clark out of a Formula <laughs> 1 Grand Prix car is easier said than done. So the whole background is a sort of mix of uh, journalism and working with policymakers. And yes, as you and I first met, I was a, um, a journalist, but I then kind of went on to go and work for one of the large multinational American-owned communications companies. And then uh, not long after the Labour government was elected in the late, uh, late 90s, I decided actually I can bring all these things together and I wanted to kind of create my own business. So we launched Cicero and Cicero now really advises mainly finance, we work with a whole number of other sectors too, but it's, it's mainly finance across public policy, communications, thought leadership and research. Um, and we do that here in the UK, we do it in Brussels, uh, we do it in North America and, and we, we do it in Asia. So, you know, the real thing that kind of gets me going in the morning is I describe as kind of being part of the current and being part of Cicero allows me, I think, to be part of the current. Yeah, I mean, Cicero's been phenomenally successful and you've created a very big profile for yourself as not only a financial services commentator, but also a, a very much sought after political commentator. And, and I've seen you speak on many occasions at many dinners. Um, in fact, you were speaking at the uh, network about a week before the Scottish independence referendum. And then I saw you speaking again, probably about two weeks before the general election. So you're always there in the thick of it with your finger on the pulse making predictions about elections and and, uh, the way that politics is going to go. Where did this interest in politics come from and how has it developed? I I think that the very first memory I have of getting really, really interested in politics was watching the movie uh, all the President's Men. Okay. Talking about uh, what happened uh, with Nixon um, so no, that that was the spark of it, really, and, and um, you know what? I've got a large picture in my office of the poster of all the presidents men. So any time I'm having a sort of um, flagging day or looking for inspiration, that poster um, uh, serves to kind of get me back on track again. Yeah. So I've mentioned those two speeches that I heard you make. The first one before the Scottish independence referendum, the second one before the general election. Just be interested in your take on Scottish independence now that we're almost a year down the line. And obviously I've lived in Scotland for nearly 25 years. I was quite relieved at the result. But has Scottish independence gone away for now? And uh, where's that political climate taking us? Well, far from it. The SNP tsunami that took place during the UK general election, you know, where they've got 56 out of 59, amazing, really, 56 out of 59 MPs um, in uh, Westminster coming from Scotland are from the SNP. You know, I, 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 and I think we're going to see 
the SNP government re-elected. Certainly, if you look at the current opinion polls, if the opinion polls are anything to track, yeah. uh, given what happened in the election, they're, they're probably going to remain the administration in, in Holyrood. So the the dynamic, the political dynamic um, in Scotland to have, if you like, a second um, referendum remains. Now, the question really is going to be whether or not the SNP are going to put the idea of a second referendum in their manifesto for the Hollywood elections in 2016 yeah. or, or not. And that's a really, really big question that people like me are keeping their eyes on at the minute. But no, is the question of, of Scottish independence dead? Absolutely not. The second speech I heard you give was just before the general election this year. And I think everybody was quite surprised at the overall Conservative victory. So now they've got an agenda, now they've got a mandate. Where do you think financial advice and financial services are going to go? Obviously, we've just heard about yet another financial advice review. What what do you think the real agenda is with the new government when it comes to financial services? Well, I mean, you just pointed to it. The fact that there is a review of the advice sector taking place, I I, I think is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it, it, it really, really is. And there's no doubt the political desire to, I mean, reopen some of the debates that we've had before on retail distribution, on whether or not advice is reaching as much of the market as possible. I mean, it really, it really comes from the very top politically. Um, you know, we've got a, a new minister in um, Harriet Baldwin, a new financial services minister, who uh, was very exercised about whether or not the retail distribution review would do the right job um, during the last parliament when she was a backbench member of parliament. Yeah. So the fact that this um, fundamental kind of review of the advice sector is now taking place, I think does provide an opportunity for the advice sector, for providers, for um, consumer groups, for frankly anybody who's interested or cares about whether or not advice is available and gets to the people that it should be getting to, to basically pitch in and make the argument. The difference though, and this would be my advice if I could put it that way, to the financial services sector is it's got to make the arguments this time round, if you like, in a much more balanced way than before. I think the arguments often have looked very, very self-serving, yeah, yeah. Uh, purely for the sector, you know, for the, the advice community generally. I think it's got to look at making arguments uh, in the right, making arguments for the benefit of the wider um, kind of UK economy than just what's good or what's bad for financial services. And who are the best people to try to put these views across? Do we have to rely upon the the IFA lobby groups and the ABI, etc., or or should individual IFAs try to talk to their MPs themselves? I I, I think the one thing that the RDR has done, I think everybody listening in this can can can, can see this for themselves, is that it means that virtually every firm whether or not you're an intermediary or whether or not you're a provider or or, or or anything in between, has placed a different, sometimes a subtly different, sometimes a massively different bet on the market. Yeah. You know, people are distributing in very, very different kind of ways. They are pricing in very, very different kind of ways. So actually, I think there's a need for firms, big and small, 
um, national and local to pitch in with arguments and evidence uh, to Treasury, to the regulator, to ministers, to their backbench MP, uh, in, you know, in order to make the case. Because I, I just don't think what you know, there is a one size fits all approach to this conversation anymore. I guess it might be a little bit overwhelming for some so one man bands to think that they might be able to influence government. But I, I think my take on it has been that before the evidence that was coming from the industry, as you say, was a little bit too self-serving. It, it, it maybe appeared that it was it was to, it was to self-serve the big institutions, whereas I don't think that the the brass plate and the man on the streets voice was heard. So I, I would be quite interested in in trying to help those people to put their point across. Whereas before, I think their their voices were just lost in the storm. The digital revolution that's taking place around politics, you know, it's happened, it's just the digital revolution has taken place on the high street, it's taken place in financial, financial services. Yeah. Um, so politicians, you can, you can run a very, very effective campaign, you know, digitally uh, right now. You can be very, very noisy in a digital way, frankly, without having to spend a whole bunch of money. If you've got, if you've got the right ideas, you can create uh, and turn up uh, the volume uh, for your campaigns in a way that just simply wasn't possible before. It's actually of such a good point. I mean, a lot of the time we tend to think of digital technology and social media as a marketing tool, but it is predominantly an engagement tool, a communications vehicle. And therefore, if this is a good way of getting to a politician and getting putting across ideas to them, then it's within the, the realm of everybody. It, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's not to the exclusion of creating evidence and writing something that has some real, you know, FUD factor that lands in a politician's or a, a, a policymaker's entry. You know, you've got to do that too. But you've also got to win the battle of public opinion. Mm. And the sector has been, the sector has not been very good at winning the battle of public opinion. And that, you know, frankly, that was happening before the financial crisis too, wasn't it? I mean, uh, when, when the Treasury Select Committee over 10 years ago was writing reports about um, trust and confidence in financial services. All of that happened before the market blew up. And I think going on to think about public opinion of financial services is something that's very close to my heart as a marketeer. And I think that um, it doesn't really matter whether we've had RDR or all the legislation that's gone before or all the legislation that's to come, there's still this stigma attached to the financial services industry. And we've brought a lot of it on ourselves with the mis-selling scandals. You know, PPI is still a major issue. We've had all the stuff going Going on in the past, and the public have a pretty dim view of financial services, and it, and it doesn't help. There are so many uh, negative news stories that you can Google and you can find on the internet that it almost creates a confirmation bias that supports the the negative view that a lot of people have. But on the other side of the coin, I think that those people who have got a financial advisor or those people who have had financial advice are actually quite happy with it. So it's almost trying to get people to experience it. And then maybe that will help overcome the negative perceptions. But a lot of the time, it's those negative perceptions that stop people from going and seeing a financial advisor in the first place. Yeah, I know. And that's right. And you get the same sort of thing from the banking industry. And, you know, there's very few people that will say, you know, everyone wants to condemn the banking sector, but then they don't want to say, well, actually, my bank's a little rubbish. Uh, so I, I think that's exactly the same thing. And, 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 and you know, mobilising 
voices in front of politicians to, uh, and, and policymakers to, to, to make the point that this isn't just self-serving, there's a whole bunch of people that actually think there's a good service being provided to them. Yeah. And You've been around in the financial services industries like I have now for over 20 years. You've seen the positives. You've seen the negatives. What be, what would be the one or the two things that you think financial services providers and financial advisors need to do to try to overcome this negative perception that the public have? What do we need to do to bring that customer focus to the fore? I remember talking a lot to firms at the time as TCF was rolling out. Yeah. Uh, and, and TCF was rolling out just at the same time, as back to my earlier point about the digital revolution, that was starting to happen. And, you know, there's a lot of people in financial services that would come and talk to me and they would say, right, okay, what can we do through these new channels just to push out a message? And my response would be, hang on, before we start pushing, what are we doing in terms of listening? Right. And the, you know, the, the ability to listen to uh, the consumer, the ability to listen to voters, the ability to listen to those who the financial services sector wants to engage with, I think has to be the starting point. Now, there are great examples of firms that are getting so, so much better at that. Yeah. But I know when policymakers really perk up and get interested, when you turn around and say, well, actually, we're not saying this, what we're arguing for is something that we've tested with our own um, customers. And and here's the result of what we've tested with our own customers. And that then gets you into a conversation about actually what works and what doesn't. Uh, I mean, frankly, in the midst of the, the pensions revolution right now, policymakers are absolutely crying out for the evidence of what's going on, what's going wrong, what's going right. So, you know, for me, it's it's absolutely about listening. And then, yes, presenting the argument in a way that's about good for the marketplace, not necessarily um, good for uh, one or two firms. And again, I think we come back to digital technology. It gives us the ability to listen as well. You know, once upon a time, I suppose you can never, ever replace the good old focus group and getting a, a bunch of people in a room and just letting them talk. But that can be quite expensive. But these days, again, social media allows you to listen in on conversations and, and get real, real people's views on pretty much anything. Yeah, I think that, that, that's exactly right. And, and you know, oh, politicians remember obsess over what people think. You know, we, they've had focus groups running in the states and in this country for the last twenty years. They are now able during campaigns, and I think you know we've just seen this perhaps more effectively than ever before. You know, really, really, really carefully tailored messages coming into your inbox that actually make you want to read them <laughs> as opposed to you know generic stuff that just doesn't feel relevant to you or, or you know, in your life using using those kind of techniques uh, politicians understand and frankly if they see the sector using them then I think they will think well you know there's something worth listening to here I'm quite enthused now that because we have much more open communications channels and digital and social media that perhaps this time more than any time we've got a real opportunity to properly engage and to put over some really good ideas and and actually have a dialogue rather than almost like a a, a list of demands that's exactly it it's about a dialogue turning up saying we don't want we don't like we can't do we can't implement 
Look, I mean, that's not a dialogue. That's just a sort of list of moments. Turning up, saying, look, I understand, you know, you've been elected with these priorities. Here's our view on these priorities. And actually, here's how we think things might work better. I mean, the reason the intermediary sector broadly lost the RDR debate, not all of the intermediary sector, there are parts of the intermediary sector that are very pleased with how the RDR piece has gone. But, you know, um, a, a large part of the intermediary sector was not happy with the result of the RDR. The reason that, that it, it didn't work is that they got policymakers excited. It, you know, they did very effective letter writing campaigns, a sort of analog version of, you know, the, the digital campaigning. They got select committees excited. They got members of parliament excited. They got some ministers listening. And then select committees and MPs and policymakers turned right into the intermediary sector and said, right, okay, you're saying that there's going to be consumer detriment because of the RTR. Okay, quantify it for us. Yeah. Give us some metric. Uh, bring it to life. And there was a deafening silence, Roger. Yes. There was an absolutely deafening silence. So, so the intermediary sector last time round in this RDR debate, this distribution conversation, did a really good job of getting people excited and then did a really lousy job of actually then taking the argument on in a very comprehensive way. And that's what needs to happen this time round. And- Given everything we've talked about this, this afternoon, Ian, and given the experience you've had across the financial services and political landscape for the last couple of decades, what is the one thing that you would like the listeners of the Empath podcast to take away from the experiences that you've had? I think it is that you can't expect change overnight. Um, working with you know, working with a policy machine, um, it's you know, it's it's not li- it's not like flicking a switch. It's not like running your own business. You. You, you, you're not going to see change quickly. No. Um, so you've got to be really, really patient with the whole thing. But because of that, it's an you know it's an ongoing job of uh, projecting the ideas and the the arguments that, that you that you actually have, and you must never lose sight of that. You've got to you know Alistair, Alistair Campbell's old maxim that the story is only getting through when you're bored of telling the story yeah <laughs> and it's it's very true that is such a good that is such a good thing to end on ian because that 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 uh, mantra works in the marketing space as well by the time most companies are fed up with their campaigns and they want to move on to something else they really do need to hang in there and keep going because eventually the message will get through and it's sometimes the fact that people change their message and move on to something else that means they're not consistent enough to portray the same message going forward Ian thank you for that fascinating canter through the political landscape through the financial services landscape and your opinions on where things might go with the next financial services services review before we go let's move into the quick fire round of business questions number one what's the one thing that you would change about the financial services industry if somebody gave you a magic wand to wave be much more direct be much more evidence-based and you know, make, make the arguments uh, in, in my world to policymakers that you know, really show that you've understood what the the voter or the customer 
actually thinks. Ian, what's your favourite product, or it could be a campaign or initiative from the last year? Tell us what you liked about it. Well, there's a campaign running uh, just at the minute, actually from one of the law firms. You don't see the law firms um, going into, I think, the marketing space uh, much, but I think they're getting stronger. It's it's by shillings, actually, the law firm. And it's a big pic, a very arresting picture of a bull. um, And they're not really talking about bulls and bears. But (laughs) in, in my world, they're talking about the day markets got interested in reputation. Ah. And it, it's just, for me, it's fascinating just how uh, more and more, um, whether or not it's companies like mine, law firms, management consultancies, everybody's getting interested in the impact of reputation on your share price, on your customer audience, on politicians. It's all sort of rather coming to, together. Uh, but you know, the fact that, my goodness, law firms are starting to advertise what you're selling. Something's crazy going on out there. It's it really digital is. again. It's digital again. It, it, that's exactly right. Yeah. Tell us about an app that's made a big difference to your working life. Got to be Twitter. There's just no doubt it's Twitter. I mean, I can I can keep a complete sense on um, how some of the debates are going. Remember during the budget uh, in 2012. Remember the pasty tax? Yes. Remember the pasty tax and how the pasty tax rose on Twitter from nowhere right to the top of the pile. So you can keep a really really sensitive uh, view on things that are making a difference and are going to be talked about um, uh, today and tomorrow. And what's the best business book that you've ever read? Tell us what you liked about it and what you took from it. Okay, so there's a really good book called Life's a Pitch and it's by quite a good ad guru called Stephen Bailey. Basically, he kind of just reminds you that um, customers don't want to hear about you. Customers want to hear about their problems and the fact that you're sitting at the table at the first place, uh, you know, is, is a testament to hopefully they believe in you and your capabilities. So, it reminds you that you need to talk about them and start talking about them and how you're going to help them with their problems rather than talking about you and and your problems. Fantastic. Ian, I'm sure there's quite a lot of people listening to the podcast today who are going to want to get in touch with you. What's the best way that they can contact you? You've already mentioned Twitter. Is that the best way? Yeah, you can get in contact with me um, on Twitter and that's Ian, that's I-A-I-N underscore W underscore Anderson. Uh, so Twitter is quite a good way to uh, get in contact with me. Or you know, please just get in contact with me via the Cicero uh, website, which is Cicero, C-I-C-E-R-O hyphen group.com. Excellent. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Your contact details, your Twitter, etc. I'll put on the show notes, rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-P-A-F. Let me wish you every success for the future and no doubt I'll be listening to you doing another after dinner speech in the near future. <laughs> listening to the marketing protection and finance podcast do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash mpaf for links to the apps and topics and books we discussed if you enjoyed the show please leave a review on itunes simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash itunes and leave a review If you are a provider or advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model you'd like to talk about, please get in touch. You can be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. 
It's all just thoughts and opinions, okay? 